This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is May 17th, 2023, and I'm Ian Bushfield. Scott's away, so it's just me, but with a special interview. On today's show, I speak to the Thais reporter, Jen St. Dennis, about BC housing, Atira, and everything going on with probably the biggest story in BC politics this past couple of weeks. Uh, it's an important interview, and I hope you enjoy it. I'll throw it over to there in a second. But as always, if you enjoy this interview, if you enjoy this show, patreon.com slash politicoast. Well, joining me now is Jen St. Dennis, a reporter with the TIE who's been there since 2020. Is that right? Yeah, we last spoke when you were at Star Metro. Uh, and we were doing Canby Report back in the 2018 Vancouver election, I think. Welcome back like to one life- of my podcasts. That feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> right? Another election, a pandemic, and so much more happening since then. I'm having you here on Politicos to talk about BC housing, Atira, and just the mess that's really exploded in the last couple of weeks. You've been covering this story. I was just scrolling through the TIE archives for a long time and it, at least since early 20, 2021 right that's right yeah and then there has been allegations of stuff going back to 2018 but there's a lot to dig into here cuz i you know it's one of these stories that i wasn't following too closely and i don't think many people have so i want to kind of get us through an overview of what's the important stuff that people should know out of our conversation today. And I guess where we need to start is our, who are these players? So let's talk about what Atira, Atira is because it's multiple things. <laughs> yes, it's multiple entities. Well, I think it's, it's one of a number of nonprofit organizations that operates housing in BC. And so there, there's a quite a few of these, of these nonprofits, um, usually with really well-intentioned, you know, mission statements um, they're often operating a mix of um, supportive housing and social housing and homeless shelters and maybe a range of other services. And so some of the other ones that people might really recognize are PHS, which used to be known as Portland Hotel Society, um, Rain City, Lookout, the Bloom Group, Community Builders. You know, there, there's quite a number of these nonprofits that are running this housing that is often, you know, has its has its challenges because they're they're housing people who maybe have had experiences with homelessness in the past, might have challenges like mental illness, addictions, that kind of thing, living in poverty, deep poverty. Um, and over the years, the BC government has really become increasingly reliant on these nonprofits. Um, and usually what they do is they fund them, they give them money, and in turn, the organization is operating this housing that's very vital to addressing problems like homelessness. And that money flows through the Crown Agency of BC Housing, which has been around since the 1960s. I was looking it up uh, and I guess used to be more directly involved in the housing operations, but now it's moving more to this outsourced 
approach as I understand it? Or is it still a mix? Yeah, it's still a mix. BC Housing still does operate some housing. But I think especially during the BC Liberals, when they were in power from you know 2001 to 2017, um, they were really part of that, you know, emphasizing trying to get the nonprofits or the or the private sector more involved in running this kind of housing. And so for instance, the BC Liberals did a big so social housing asset sell-off in sort of the 2014, sorry, 2015, 2016 period. Um, they were selling off a lot of properties that the BC government had owned, and they were selling them to nonprofits with the idea that the nonprofits would then be able to use that, that land to like redevelop or build more housing and kind of be a more robust player, where, whereas before it would have been more like BC housing doing all that stuff. And I guess Atira started to come into the spotlight because a number of their properties uh, were having issues, right? There was, I think, most famously the fire at the Winters Hotel, but I uh, just skimming some of the recent reporting and trying to refresh my memory, that's far from the only concern people have expressed before the like yeah. latest audits. You know, this actually kind of goes back, it goes back further than my reporting. There was a CBC investigation that happened in around 2011, 2012, done by Kathy Tomlinson and Eric Rankin at the time. And at the time, what they were reporting was uh, Atira had taken over operation of a bunch of single room occupancy hotels in the downtown east side that the BC government had bought in an effort to prevent to prevent them from being like resold and speculated on and, and the people who have housing in there being basically evicted and probably evicted into homelessness. And so at the time, um, what Kathy and Eric were reporting on was these problems, uh, mostly workers were coming to them, frontline workers who worked in these buildings and just saying, there's all these problems with the way these buildings are being run. They're very, very dirty. They're very poorly maintained. They're really dangerous. There's a lot of violence, a lot of, you know, sort of drug dealing linked crime inside of them. Um, and so uh, the C- those CBC reporters wrote this big investigation. And they also pointed out at the time, and this was kind of like, that hadn't really hit the public consciousness yet. They pointed out that, hey, in 2010, Janice Abbott, the head of Atira, married Shane Ramsey, who's the CEO of BC Housing. And they've both been, they've both been the leaders of their respective organizations for quite a long time. So Shane uh, became CEO in 2000. Janice had been CEO of Atira since 1992, when the organization was mostly concerned with running transition houses for women fleeing violence. Um, so that's what that reporting kind of brought out. And then when I came on in 2020 as the Thais downtown east side reporter, my goal was really to talk directly to downtown east side residents. You know, reporters often will kind of rely on social service agencies or advocates to talk about what's happening in the neighborhood. But I wanted to go one level deeper and really talk directly to residents. And it turns out what they wanted to talk about was these problems with all of these SROs that Atira operates. And what I found was that those same concerns that Kathy and Eric had reported on for CBC were still there. There was a lot of concern about workers not being trained properly, a lot of violence and delayed maintenance and dirty buildings and just kind of a what kind of emerged was just an organization with a lot of a lot of problems just running these buildings. Maybe let's give that a little bit of color. One of the people you highlight is Nicole, who's uh, anonymized. Uh, frontline worker was. Could you tell us a little bit about her story? Yeah, so I first talked to Nicole when she worked at the Gastown Hotel in 2021. And some someone was 
uh, a man was murdered at the hotel one night uh, in January 2021. And it was the second murder in a year. A year previous, uh, this woman named Tanya Heyer had also been tragically murdered inside the hotel. Um, and so it just sort of started to come out, like people were talking on this neighborhood Facebook group. I talked to a tenant and to Nicole, the worker at that time. And to my surprise, I found that Nicole was actually also a tenant at another Atira run SRO at the same time. And that's when I kind of started to realize this organization really runs things a little differently than other organizations that run SROs, which are very, very difficult buildings to run. Like, let's just acknowledge that off the top. They're old buildings. They have shared bathrooms. The tenants have lots of problems. Like, these are hard buildings to run. Um, but what I found when I really dug into this was that Atira, and th this is through their, their property management subsidiary. So they have these different business entities that they run things through. So the Atira property management ran like a really large number of SROs, more than other organizations. They ran 20 of these buildings at the time. Some of them were, some of them were publicly owned by the BC government. Some were privately owned. Some were owned by other nonprofits. So there was a whole mix. And they were staffing them. They said they had a commitment to staff the buildings with 80% of the staff coming from the downtown Eastside community. But what that meant was that often their workers at one SRO would actually be living at another Atira managed SRO. And at the same time, these workers were not very well trained. Um, you know, they, they often had continued to have problems with ongoing addiction. And so what Nicole and what a lot of workers talked to me about was just working alongside a coworker who was supposed to be helping them, but would be not able to work because they were actively using drugs on their shift. And so what just started to emerge was just like a series of kind of problems. Another thing that I found out was that these workers are really, really paid a lot less than in other supportive housing sectors. So front desk workers in a Atira property management buildings are paid $17 an hour. And at most other supportive housing buildings, the, the floor for the wage is like $24 an hour. So just an enormous gap between what, what workers were being paid. So those were some of the issues that started to emerge as I started to dig into this stuff. Yeah. And I think we saw in some of the other reporting, you talked about people in these houses not having doors and just that, you know, recurring themes of safety and security and cleanliness and just, you know, able to live mm -hmm. comfortably. Yeah. I'll never forget um, going into one of the... One of the SROs, the Colonial, which is privately owned, but that Atira gets funding from BC Housing to run, um, going in there with this lovely, soft-spoken Indigenous man named David, who had been homeless and had been housed in the Colonial, and just showed me his room. And I remember my stomach just dropping because it was, he didn't have a floor even. He, it was just sort of bare plywood. He had um, huge holes underneath his sink that had been made by rats that he had had to patch himself and just the level of decrepitness of the building shocked me. There was many, many of the doors had been boarded over with plywood. And I later learned that the building is, is in such bad shape that they can only keep it 70% full because otherwise it would put too much of a strain on the plumbing and the electrical. Um, and so it was really quite shocking just to see, you know, the poor, the quality of this housing that had been touted as one of the solutions to homelessness you know, when we look at why people choose to live in, in tents on the street or in a park, this is why, because it's often preferable to the SRO. Indeed. Now, like you mentioned, these aren't new issues at Atira, right? They were raised in 2011. Uh, there's also 
this report that was looked at in 2018. Can you talk a little bit about what that report is and how it never amounted to anything? Yeah, and Seemingly. I think this will really lead into like why we're ta- why we're talking about this now, the current government scandal. So yeah, so basically what was happening was um, yes, there was this CBC report, and um, at the time they they went and talked to the housing minister at the time, Rich Coleman. Rich said he had perfect confidence in Janice and Shane, and believed that they had been managing their conflict of interest appropriately. Um, but what was happening inside BC Housing, it turns out, was that there had been like just growing concern about how Atira was not able to manage their finances properly. They continually had um, late financial reporting. Uh, They were constantly coming to BC Housing with asks for more money to fund various things. But because of their very poor financial record keeping, BC Housing wasn't able to really evaluate if if these were valid asks for money. Um, And so it was just becoming such a problem that in 2017, this BC Housing senior staffer decided to commission this external financial review. And he got this financial or accounting firm BDO to come in. And what it found was um, it confirmed what, you know, these staffers already knew that Atira hadn't been able to manage its budget. Like it had um, been filing its uh, financial uh, documents to BC Housing late uh, just was not able to manage its budget properly um, for year for years and years, and had been paid like a very unusually high amount of money from BC Housing. Um, I think the figure was something like one point three million dollars. If you in from like twenty thirteen to twenty nineteen, they were kind of given these two unusual payments: one of six hundred thousand dollars and one of around eight hundred thousand dollars, just to kind of make up for their budget shortfall, even though they weren't really able to manage the budget. So it was just a very strange situation when you look at this report. It's very damning. And what this senior staffer wanted to have, have happen and what the what BC Housing's executive decided was that they weren't going to give any new funding to Atira until they addressed these financial problems. Um, and what ended up happening was that Janice Abbott went to the board chair of BC Housing, Cassie Doyle, had some sort of conversation with her. And the review was just kind of halted and it was moved to un- to be under the purview of the BC Housing Board. And so this whole thing was just kind of illustrates how they basically kind of got this investigate or this review and the consequences of the review shut down. That decision to suspend funding until they could get their finances under control never, never really happened. And so they were just allowed to kind of go on and continue. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, it hadn't been reported until I got a leaked, doc, a leaked um, copy of this of this BDO report in kind of early 2022. Yeah, and so 2022 kind of moves forward. We get the housing ministry quietly doing and releasing an operational review from Ernst and Young just before mm-hmm. Canada Day. Yes, uh, <laughs> I'm assuming that wasn't a very positive review either. It, it doesn't seem like there's ever very, good news. Yeah, it's actually a very boring review. It's still as ditch water to read. But there were a couple of things. And I should note, you know, I had been I'm trying to FOI this review. They denied it. They ended up giving it to Francis Beale at the Globe and not giving it to me, which I'm still a little crusty about. Um, anyways, so Francis... No hate on... No to hate. No, no hate on Francis, I, I love that Francis. I love that Francis reported on it. I was just... They didn't give it to me at the same time they gave it to her. Um, so yeah, so Frances did this excellent report where she pointed out that there was these um, sort of couple of interesting items in the report talking about how 
Um, the BC Housing hadn't really followed the proper decision-making kind of parameters when deciding whether to buy these certain properties. That they were, they were. If you'll remember, they were buying a whole bunch of hotels and motels during the pandemic to quickly house people. And some of those purchases, the EOI report kind of said, you know, there wasn't really a lot. We couldn't find any rationale for why they had done this purchase. The CEO of BC Housing, Shane Ramsey, seems to have like really been personally involved in one of these, in a few of these purchases and just seems to be unilaterally decided. So that raised some red flags. Um, so that was kind of what that review found. Uh, but it turns out that there was this whole other review happening, sparked by what some of the former BC housing staff had been telling Ernst and Young. And that was actually turned out to be a forensic audit, which is a whole different thing. Um, but we didn't really know about that. I, I was able to report in July that some sort of investigation was still happening, but we didn't know what. And then it was only until the BC Liberals, now called the BC United, the opposition, were kind of hammering on the government in the fall that we realized there was a forensic audit happening at BC Housing. Yeah, and those purchases were news of their own, right? I remember there was several of these hotels were hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions over mm -hmm. assessed value. Yes. yes. Uh, and I think the Auditor General ultimately said it was, or ultimately cleared <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, the Auditor General but... <laughs> said it was fine. It was, yeah, I have my thoughts about that Auditor General report. But the rationale, okay, let's just look at one of those purchases, the Patricia Hotel. Um, this is a actually very well-maintained SRO hotel that has the Pat, Pat uh, Patricia, what is, the, what is the pub named in the bottom? Pat's Pub. Oh, I don't the remember. Patricia Hotel. I been pub. Done that okay. Apologies that I don't have that on the tip of my tongue, but a lot of people know this pub. It's like very nice and had jazz performances in it, and was quite beloved in the Strathcona neighborhood. Um, and so the auditor general kind of pointed out, or there was a rationale that there was a parking lot beside that hotel that's empty and could it be redeveloped in the future. And that was the reason that that was kind of paid, that more money was paid for that. And that did kind of make sense to me. But I think when we're looking at the Ernst & Young operational review and they're bringing that up, that that, you know, it was just kind of like decided upon without a lot of like rationale that 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 raised some red flags. And it turns out that 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 wasn't the only purchase that had been kind of completed like that. Yeah, it might be one of those situations where each purchase on their own might be justifiable in hindsight, but looking at the process, it seems like there was a breakdown. Yeah, once or... we got yeah, once we got this other review that just came out in May, and we'll talk more about it. There did a pattern did emerge for sure. But even before we get this review, let's we're still stuck in uh, last summer. Shane Ramsey quit. Yeah, kind of. Well, out of and let's go back and talk a little bit more too about what we're hearing, still hearing from tenants and workers. You know, I was still reporting on these kind of things that were still continued to shock me. I thought I had become unshockable, but you know, tenants living in their SRO that had the broken window for two years, like, and I mean, I mean, like, no, no glass left in the frame. When I say broken window, uh, tenants being bullied out of a hotel of a of an SRO by usually drug dealers so they can deal drugs out of their room, still paying rent and being left pushed back into homelessness. A woman with severe mental illness who lived in her room, in her SRO room, in quite a violent SRO building, may I add, without a, without a door on her room for months, which is a severe, severe fire safety violation. So just the level of 
stuff that I was hearing was just kind of off the rails. And then in April 2022, tragically, tragically, the, the Winters Hotel had a catastrophic fire and had to be demolished. And that that really put this whole story in a new light, a new urgency of just, you know, needing to point out that things were not okay uh, because two tenants died in that fire. Yeah, and we found out after that the fire department looked at it, there were sprinklers were off, the fire extinguishers were empty, and it sounds like there's going to be, or there is going to be a coroner's inquest. I was just mm-hmm. looking in that one, I guess, is probably next up after the Miles Gray one. I think one, so, yeah. We still don't one. know the date of the coroner's inquest. Yeah. So, yeah, it just a lot of really troubling things emerged. Um, so there had been a previous fire on April 8th, uh, which was a Friday, and it was, fires happen all the time in SROs. It was a fairly minor f- fire got put out. But then what was supposed to happen was that the sprinkler and alarm system were supposed to be turned back on. You have to call a fire systems contractor to come in. And I heard from a former staffer that the normal practice at a tier of buildings is to call the, the contractor right away. Like even if it's a Friday night, you call them right away and get it turned back on. These are very, very vulnerable buildings that have fires all the time. That didn't happen for three days. And there was supposed to be a fire watch. And uh, none of the tenants and none of the business owners downstairs remember being notified or even seeing these extra patrols that are supposed to be happening. And then we come to April 11th, the day of the fire, the alarm and sprinklers are still off and the fire extinguishers are empty. It turns out they've been used for the April 8th fire and not filled, not replaced. And so, you know, just considering that two very vulnerable tenants died, a 68 year old woman who's a residential school survivor, and a 53-year-old man who was hearing impaired. So Marianne Garlow and Dennis Gue died in this fire. Um, it really, you know, I'm considering that I've previously written all these stories about how poorly trained the staff are and all of these lapses. Um, you know, that just kicked it into high gear for me that, gosh, we need to really shine a light on this organization because these previous stories from my point of view, didn't seem to really shift the needle that much. We had like premier defending a tier and all this stuff. And yeah, so that's kind of the context in which that happened. But luckily, BC Housing's former staff did start eventually talking to me about this conflict of interest angle as well. So we can get into that too. Yeah, but that's not the official reason Ramsey left BC Housing. He steps down mm-hmm. last summer citing escalating violence and his Mm -hmm. frustrations and yeah he says he basically doesn't have the confidence he can solve the complex problems facing Mm -hmm. us and he yeah it was was kind of a weird statement we know now that it wasn't a voluntary resignation at the time he's he said it was like he said i there had been a lot of really disturbing violent incidents in the downtown side Mm -hmm. and he said he just was disheartened he had also been uh, verbally attacked at a, at a public hearing for this new supportive housing complex in Kitsilano that was very uh, controversial. Right. And people had been kind of yelling at him and it, that, that was hard. And he said those were the reasons he was resigning. But what we now know is that he was being told he had to go. So we have a new board of BC Housing come in in July. Uh, Shane Ramsey steps down in August. And then, as you mentioned, the opposition criticism and digging and yelling about this really picks up through 
the fall, especially in November and December, uh, your the number of stories you have. I'm mostly referring to this one piece you did a few weeks ago. That's just a timeline of reporting you've done uh, for the TIE, and it's not even comprehensive. And now we get finally this report, uh, really just digging into why the, why this conflict of having the CEO of a crown corporation married to like their biggest client uh, is a problem. Yeah. Their biggest, yeah. The person, the, yeah. Yes. Well, it's quite obvious why that's a problem, but but we had to do a lot of digging and nudging to kind of bring that out into the light. So yeah. So well, I'll just give my, like my personal timeline because I was kind of seeing a lot of things unfold behind the scenes and then I was seeing government kind of react to it. So in about in February 2022, that's actually when I started talking to these former BC housing staffers about them frequently witnessing Shane Ramsey giving direction, urging projects and funding to be given to Atira, like very frequently. And that's a total violation of conflict of interest rules. I think it's really easy to understand that. Like if you're married, if you're the head of a major crown corporation and you fund, you know, this, these contractors or nonprofits or whatever, and your spouse's heads, one of those nonprofits, then obviously you have to have a separation and they're not making the decisions. And that wasn't happening. But our problem was that these people all wanted to be anonymous and we just were not in a place where we could report that at the time. And it wasn't until um, months and months later that the BC liberals got leaked this series of text messages. And this was really key. Um, from a former BC housing staffer who had been kind of on the receiving end of all these messages from Shane Ramsey saying, just getting involved in all sorts of ways about various different things, like a meal program that Atira ran or like a project that he thought Atira would be good for, uh, you know, contracts for modular housing, just random stuff all the time that Shane would kind of text this person about. Um, And so once we got our hands on those text messages, which I fully knew existed, but just didn't have yet, um, that's when we were able to really break through and using our anonymous sources, we were able to say like, look, we have these text messages, like it happened. Um, and then after that, uh, you know, we knew that the forensic audit was happening because the government had finally responded in, in response to a lot of prodding from the opposition in these very feisty question period sessions. Um, and then more staffers started to uh, um, get in touch with me. These were actually people who had worked at the organization at BC Housing a lot longer ago in the sort of 2010 to 2014 period. And they were telling me, you know, this, this was these conflict of interest violations were happening back when we were working at BC Housing. And we told the then board chair about it and nothing was done. And that's when I just started going like, this was a very severe problem with the whole organization of BC Housing that, you know, that this went on for so long that no board chair and no Ministry of Housing, Minister of Housing did anything about this for years and years, even though it was this well-known thing. Um, So that to me was just like quite sobering. Yeah, I think... When I first saw this story, it felt like a big chunk of the issue was like the management at Atira, which has clearly been an issue. But the blind eye at BC Housing facilitated by yeah. that conflict Can, is where it becomes political. It's like the reason you want to have that separation is because you want BC Housing staff to just be awarding these contracts based on who's the best operator for the project. And so I think this, you know, seeing how Atira has 
had these huge problems, very, very huge problems, concerning problems that involved vulnerable tenants for quite a number of years, but that they still were given more and more money. Like every single year, it just kept going up and up and up until finally at the end, they were, they were receiving the most money and had the most projects of any supportive housing provider. And so that in itself, like just, just looking at those numbers, you, you just had to say like, this is, this is just so blatant, this conflict of interest. It's obviously, it's obviously not okay. Yeah, that was flagged in your reporting as well as the audit itself that Atira had more projects, was growing faster than everyone else. Like even without a forensic audit, it just has the smell yeah. of like bias. Favoritism. Favoritism. And, and that's not good for any industry, right? That's not good for that's not good for cell phone carriers. That's not good for social housing providers. Like there, there should be some sort of like objective, you know, analysis of like, who's the best provider. Um, yeah. So, and, and keep in mind too, that this previous 2018 video report had flagged that Atira was really having a hard time managing its budget for years. And that in an FOI that I did, you know, it, 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 the same stuff was coming up again in 2021. There was still, it was still, Atira was still having trouble managing its budget and spending all of the money it was actually being given. It actually, it was actually running all these big surpluses, even though a lot of the staff were complaining that they were so understaffed and like single one person would be working. Understaffed, underpaid, but the nonprofit and profit. But the money kept flowing. <laughs> yeah. So the report comes out, the initial response by Atira is, was weirdly to double down uh, behind Janice Abbott mm -hmm. uh, and the board there. But it seems like they have come to their senses. Uh, Abbott has yeah. announced her resignation. And there's mm -hmm. like another level of investigations going to begin. So, yeah, so the report that came out on May 8th, which the government stopped calling a forensic audit and started calling a forensic investigation for whatever reason, it basically confirmed all of that stuff because the same people who were talking to me had also been talking to the EY investigators and just saying, and they, you know, they had emails, they had, they had texts, they had lots of things that, that proved that, yes, Shane had just been, like, repeatedly getting involved in these decisions, um, so there was no real question about that. Um, we also heard a little bit more about why the board was fired. The previous board was fired. Um, so David Eby told us uh, that he had asked the BC Housing Board to, you know, fire Shane or, or put him on leave. And they had refused to do that. And uh, apparently they thought there was too much legal risk to doing that. So that's why they were fired. Um, yeah. And then we just sort of, sort of saw this tussle play out in the week after the EY report was released on May 8th, where we just saw Tira kind of saying, we're not sure if we trust this report. There's a lot of inaccuracies. Um, it's, and they had this whole response pointing out what they thought were inaccuracies, um, saying that they support Janice, because it is, it is important that we, that we put out there that um, the EY investigation never found um, that Atira had misused public funds and they didn't find that Shane and Janice had yeah. personally yeah, I was about to mention this activity. So that's important to say. Um, but yeah, so because of that, Atira said, you know, we fully support Janice Abbott. Um, and the government was also asking them to return a $1.9 million surplus. And they were asking them to put a government representative on their board. And Atira was actually resisting both of those things. 
um, then they backed down on all those positions. And finally on Monday, yeah, they, they announced that Janice Abbott would be resigning. And we should note too that the BC government had frozen their funding at this point. Like they'd frozen the money for any new projects um, until all this got sorted out. And, but they, they emphasized the whole time, you know, people living in the housing right now, the programs that they're receiving, that that's going to continue. It was just... Yeah, that's the tough part of this whole story is whatever happens to Atira, they are still the provider of thousands of people's homes. Yeah, that's, that is the really tough thing that they, you know, they've been allowed to grow this much and they do have this huge responsibility and, uh, you know, and their workers too, genuinely, most of the workers I've talked to, and this is both on the Tira Women's Resources Society side and Atira Property Management side, you know, there's a lot of workers who really believe in the mission of the organization, really love their jobs despite the huge, huge, huge challenges. Um, they genuinely like doing this work. Uh, and then we have the tenants, too, who have been living in this housing, a lot of them maybe having problems, but then a lot of them also knowing that they would they might be homeless if they didn't have this housing. So, yeah, it's a really tough situation. Yeah, and now EB has announced that KPMG is going to be doing a full audit of Atira Women's Resource Society and the, prop- the for-profit property management section to, yeah. I guess... Tell us again, but a more updated version of the 2018 report. Yeah, so we got this confirmable. I don't know if I don't know why this was unclear, but there was everybody I was talking to was asking. You know, initially the Ernst and Young forensic investigation said that they had they hadn't looked at a chair property management; they'd only looked at a chair women's society. And so all the people I was talking to said, "Well, you know, most of the." problem, really big problems that have been happening are with the APMI side and wondering why that wasn't being fully audited. Uh, but then they confirmed this week to me that they're going to take a look and audit. Not They're doing an operational review of the entire organization as well. But in addition to that, they've hired KPMG to do an audit to look at all of Atira's books. And that does include Atira Women's and Atira Property Management. And that's important because there's a lot of there's a lot of questions about how those two organizations interact with each other. You know, a tier of women's will also often be the organization that is asking government for funding or that funding is being granted to, but you know, it's for a project that is managed by or a building that's managed by APMI. So I'm not really clear, you know, is APMI really separate? It's, it's unclear at this point. And so I think a lot of the tenants and workers have questions about, you know, a tier, the revelation that a tier has been running surpluses too. The union that represents workers at Atira Property Management and that is trying to do a unionization drive at Atira Women's right now was saying, you know, we're shocked that they're running these surpluses when we are asking for better staffing and and higher wages. So there's a lot of questions about how the money is being used. Yeah, so I guess there's an ongoing story on that side. I, I guess the other part of me up from the political angle is just kind of wondering how much having gotten this report out, gotten like leadership change at both organizations. How much has that stopped the bleeding, I guess, for the David Eby and the BCNDP? Like at this point, can they start to put this story behind them and say, look, this was an issue between the conflict between Janice Abbott and Shane Ramsey. And now that they're both out and reforms are started at both, 
because I know there's definitely a lot of people out there who are very critical of the entire like nonprofit complex approach to housing that outsourcing model. Um, I think this was politically, this was kind of, you know, we saw BC United really jumping on it and really trying to, um, really trying to uh, pin it on David Eby specifically, because he was, David Eby was housing minister before he became premier. He was housing minister and he was housing minister when, uh, when the BDO report came down, I think, although Selena Robinson may have overlapped. And then he was also the housing minister when he started the operational review of BC housing. And so it's very tempting and very easy for the BC United uh, MLAs to really hammer, hammer the NDP with this, which they have been doing. But on the other side, the NDP has a bit of a, you know, thing that they can use against the BC United, which is that back in 2010, when the BC Liberals, which was what BC United used to be called, um, when they were empowered, they were very dismissive of this conflict of interest concerns. And apparently the board chair of BC Housing back at that time was also informed and nobody did anything. And so for years and years and years, people were trying to raise these issues about the conflict of interest problems. And were often being fired actually. <laughs> you know, from BC housing, there's this culture of fear and silence that I think developed because people were seen to be punished. And so from the whistle, some of the whistleblowers perspective, some of them have told me that, you know, David Eby was the only person to actually move and do something about that. But then I think looking into the future, I think there are still going to be a lot of questions now about how not just a tier operate, but how other supportive housing operators function. And as well, I think that supportive housing has become more and more of a kind of a, you know, crutch almost that government has leaned on that we're building more supportive housing to end homelessness. But once you start looking inside how supportive housing runs, there's a lot of questions about it. There's not really a lot of oversight of this sector and their housing. They're kind of like, you know, they're not institutions, but there's some elements of institutionalization going on there. There's a lot of rules that, tenants of other buildings don't have to abide by. So for instance, a lot of times tenants are complaining about not being able to have visitors. And sometimes those rules are there for a very valid safety reason, but then sometimes tenants will challenge those rules to the residential tenancy board and they'll win because they operate in this gray area. And so to me, that's, that's a real question for the future is, you know, government has been funding these organizations to do supportive housing but there's a lot of questions about tenants' rights. Who is exactly being housed? What exactly are the programs? It's very all over the map. And so I think there's going to continue to be a lot of questions about this. Yeah, problem. and it's, you know, definitely a tough file because it's such an urgent issue with how many people mm -hmm. we see without houses and homes and the affordability crisis pushing more people onto the brink. And so, so many people are like yeah. one mishap from ending up on the street or in one of these uh, facilities and what that yeah. looks like for you. And there's always been this sort of, you know, thing where people always, the operators especially point out, it's really, this is hard housing to rent. People have problems and they might do things like wreck their room. They might do behavior that's not safe for other tenants. Like it's, it's difficult housing to rent, but I, I kind of, when I hear that, I, I, you know, obviously that's important to understand, but 
I feel like that was kind of always what was the excuse when I was looking into the problems I was hearing about at Atira run SROs. And I think, you know, we really have to think about listening more to the tenants, things like creating tenants councils at these buildings, um, having a more, having more tenant involvement in making up, making the rules that will keep everybody safe, that everybody knows are there and why they're there. I think, I think those are maybe some of the, some of where we need to kind of be going with this stuff. Um, rather than just always depending on government or the social housing operators to kind of tell us uh, about the problems that they're having, I think we need to listen a little bit harder to the tenants. Absolutely. Well, I think we've covered a lot in our time here. Is there any aspect of this story you just want to flag before I let you go back to work? So I think what I'd like to emphasize is the, you know, glaring tenant safety lapses that happened. I think that it's quite shocking how long that was allowed to go on for and the winter's fire really, really highlighted that for me. And I'd like to emphasize that when we, you know, we have these rules in place for a reason, like conflict of interest rules or rules that are supposed to prevent, um, you know, unfair things happening in business and in public agencies. And they're there for a reason. And when people aren't following those guidelines, there can be a real safety risk. And I would just really like to emphasize that that is why this is important to look at. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's such an important story. And I'm glad that you've been covering it so much in depth. All of your stuff on the tie is such a good uh, good analysis to read and uh, brings those perspectives that I think are really necessary to really understand the issues. So I definitely encourage everyone to go to thetai.ca, look up your work. Uh, where else should people uh, look for you or otherwise support the work that you're doing in the journalism? Uh, people can follow me on Twitter. I'm there quite a bit, maybe too much, um, at Jen St. Den on Twitter. And I'm also on Instagram more and more often at Jen St. Dennis. Thank you so much. Uh, hope you have a great afternoon and I look forward to reading more as these stories progress. Thanks, Ian. And that has been Playdrost. Find links to everything we talked about at playdrost.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playdrost. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playdrost is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.